Welcome to the last of the Call High Wildcats 1982 podcast, brought to you by Detail Man Productions. It just was kind of depressing sometimes. And, um, and it was just, it was like a time in life thing. It was the thing you just had to get through. And um, I went one night, we all, we all worked really late in those days, you know, and there was no, obviously no Zoom or even email. And so people just, you know, it was just standard. You just were around dinner, ate at your desk and leave around 10 p.m. Having been there since 9 a.m. And, uh, and I had colleagues, we all, all just did this. And so one night I was in a, a colleague's office, Madeline Rivlin, who was a brilliant tax lawyer. And uh, I was complaining about my life, you know, all the things that were like wrong with my life. And, and she just was looking at me, kind of rolling her eyes, like, you know, please, please. Yeah. And finally she said, John, assuming just for the sake of argument that it is true, that everything you've done in your life has been a complete waste up until now. That actually is not a reason to waste the rest of it. And that was like some of the best advice I ever got. Hey, this is Scott Townsend. Welcome back to the last of the Call High Wildcats 1982 podcast. And today I have with me, uh, see if you remember this, uh, page, was it nine? National Honor Society semifinalist. Honor student in the chapter of the National Honor Society, uh, distinguished as National Merit semifinalist, was the editor of the Nautilus, and uh, he hasn't stray- strayed far from his uh, what he was doing in high school. Seems like he's just doing more of it now. John Sayre, John, how's it going? All right, all right, good to see you. Good to see you too. So, where are we? Uh, where are you coming to us from? I am coming to you this morning from Germantown, New York, which is about 104 miles north of New York City, um, and it's where I have a, a weekend house that has been more or less my permanent house during COVID. Um, I still maintain an apartment in New York, but uh, but I'm here a lot, and uh, I've had this house for many years. And it's a wonderful getaway from the city. So, yeah, that's awesome. Uh, I, I was looking at your bio here. Uh, so you're a lawyer uh, practicing in tax exempt. I'm going to read this because I'll get it wrong. Tax exempt organizations, trusts and estates, art and museum law, which I, that sounds really interesting. State attorneys general and family offices. Um, looks like you went to Columbia Law School. Uh, you graduated. Oh, you were the editor. So that's fine. That's of what course. I meant by not being uh, straying far from your high school roots. There, editor of the uh, Journal of the Law and the Arts at Columbia, and graduated summa cum laude at uh, summa, summa cum laude at the uh, Southern Methodist University. Right. When I graduated, it was laude. How come? But um, that's an old joke. And then he was uh, <laughs> by uh, Phi Beta Kappa. So. <clears throat> There's a lot to cover there, man. What uh, what have you been doing since high school? <laughs> well, I've, I've been having a pretty good time, I would say, across these many years. It's kind of hard to believe it's 40 years. I'm sure that's true for everybody. Um, I was sort of doing the math and saying, well, if there were about 300 of us, I think there were more than that, times 40 years, that's 12,000 years of living that have gone on since we, uh, well, walked up on that stage at, at the auditorium downtown. 
That's a lot of years. Um, and a lot of things could go on, but, um, you know, I, after that first uh, summer out of uh, high school, I, I went to SMU and uh, really actually loved being there. I wasn't so sure I would love being there. I really kind of harbored fantasies of going east, but my parents didn't uh, see it that way. And so I went to SMU and actually had a wonderful experience in time there and uh, was uh, editor of the daily campus there, um, which and there have been other um, uh, college high people who had been editors of the daily campus for me, uh, people from a few years back, like Giles Hudson, and uh, earlier than that, uh, Karen Potter, I believe, had gone to SMU and been an editor of the Daily Campus at SMU. And I finally did that my junior year. Uh, I was also, I was a journalism major, but I was also an English major. Um, and in some ways, I discovered a subject I'd never heard of before called art history while I was there. And in some ways, I sort of wish I'd had an art history degree, too. But um, two, I guess, was enough. And it, it, I, I sort of made up for the art history other ways uh, later on. But anyway, I, uh, I edited the Daily Campus, which was lots of fun that I got a job as an intern at the Dallas Morning News. And I worked there on the city desk as the junior guy uh, on the city desk uh, from the summer of 85 and, until the summer of 87, a little, a little over two years that I was there. And because I was the most junior person, I, was, I had to do a lot of the scut work. And so I spent a lot of nights sitting in the Dallas uh, City Hall in a room called the Cop Shop, uh, where we uh, were supposed to listen to police radios, see what's going on. Every couple hours, I'd call up the Homicide Division and say, you all got anything good going on tonight? Sometimes <laughs> I'd call them more. Anything going on I need to know about, you know. And, um, and that wasn't every night. That was just some nights. Because because I was temporary, because I was an intern, they didn't um, they didn't really give me any specific beat. I kind of filled in for the people who were the real beat reporters. And uh, and the real beat reporters on the city desk at the police station at the Dallas Morning News and the Dallas Times Herald were some real characters. And uh, that, that, was a, that was a good education. It was a good education in dealing with difficult situations because, you know, you just haven't really experienced life. So you've gone out to the scene of a homicide and tried to interview the surviving family members, interview the homicide detectives, Oh man! Um, interview witnesses, and I was like, you know, twenty one, twenty two years old, and you know, going out and doing this. And I'd go back to the city desk with my pathetic quotes, and they'd say, "No, no, you need to ask harder questions, and you need to be stronger about it." You know, so there was a real process because I was, I was sort of a polite small town kid. You know, this was not what I was really raised to do. But eventually, I, I really kind of got into it and, and enjoyed doing it. Um, and and I, I covered a lot of other things too, besides besides crime. But there was a lot of crime. And um, plane crashes, parades, elections, um, just foolishness, too. Um, and uh, over the course of it, I, I managed to interview Wade of Roe Against Wade on the telephone once. And I even met Roe. Um, and oh, yeah. she wouldn't cons- consent. She wouldn't come back for the interview. She disappeared after the event that she was at, um, the woman uh, known as Jane Roe. But Wade was the Dallas County District Attorney even in the 80s. Uh, and I, did, I interviewed him briefly. Time or two. That's cool. So anyway, it was it was a good a good a good adventure, and um, pay was lousy. Um, and yeah. if, if I were going to stay, that I would have had to uh, basically submit to being some kind of a beat reporter in the burbs, which I really didn't want to do. Um, and I'd gotten into law school anyway. I got into law school, you know, my senior year at SMU, 
and deferred it for a year so I could work. And then, um, and so everybody with the morning news knew I was going off anyway. And that actually was like a great thing because they didn't have to consign me to the Mesquite Bureau or the Hearst Euless Bedford Bureau. I was working downtown, you know, with, with the big boys and that was fun. Yeah. Uh, so then I, I, I let, I then knew I was going to law school, went to law school, uh, moved, arrived at Columbia, Morningside Heights, um, uh, in August of 1987, um, and began Columbia? a whole new event. Columbia is in uh, the Morningside Heights part of uh, Manhattan, so it's okay. 116th and Broadway. And okay. um, I, I've been to New York a few times during college. I, I, SMU had in various ways arranged for me to be able to go to New York for journalism things and, and English department things. And so I, I, and I really Columbia was always my kind of a number one choice of where to go to school because I, I so wanted to be in New York and, and be part of New York things, theater and museums and things like that. And, and Columbia had a tradition of, uh, of its alumni doing things in arts related ways. Um, and so that, um, and that was a good place to be. Um, and for that purpose, there was a, a you know, center for law and the arts. So I could take classes in law and the theater and a seminar in law and the visual arts. Uh, I took copyright with Professor Jane Ginsburg, whose mother was uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And so, and she, and Jane is a very eminent copyright scholar in her own right. Um, yeah. you know, the intelligence she got from both sides in her family, she's a brilliant person. And so, yeah, there was, there was this wonderful exposure to um, the law, the visual arts and law and the arts generally there, uh, which then laid the foundation that plus the law itself, you know, I was doing regular law too. I was doing contracts and civil procedure, property law and income tax, just like everybody else. And, and mm -hmm. plus this other stuff I could do on the side. And, um, and then after, um, in law school, when you're in law school, you do these summer clerk. And, um, or work at a law firm and they pay you a lot of money to do nothing except go to lunch. And, uh, <laughs> so I did, I did a set of those in Dallas um, and uh, Vincent Elkins and Aiken Gump uh, down there in the summer of 88, um, which was great fun. Uh, never eaten so well in my life. Um, and um, then the next year, uh, I did my, my summer uh, internship at uh, a law firm called Milbank Tweed, Hadley and McCloy in New York. And mm. um, Milbank is, is a wonderful old New York firm. Um, it, had, it had and has a great trust and states department. And I was, I decided that trust in states, which is, you know, it's, it's basically estate planning writ large. I mean, it's a, a lot of different kinds of work for your individual clients was, a, would be an interesting place to be in part because individual clients did a lot of work in the arts and philanthropy generally. And that was of interest to me. And uh, so I worked at Millbank um, and became a partner there. I mean, I was there really from 1989 until 2004 working on Wall Street. And, you know, I look back at it in retrospect, and I think of it as kind of a golden time. Um, there was a lot of hard work um, and um, a lot of very challenging personalities and situations, uh, but also like a tremendous amount of fun. You know, it was, um, uh, it was just it was just really interesting having that window into the world of, of um, wealthy, powerful people and institutions. And um, so I enjoyed doing the work. The, intellectually, the work was interesting, too. And my colleagues were great. Um, and, um, I, um, uh, then I, I had an opportunity to become a partner at another firm, 
in 2004. And that's when I moved to my current firm, Patterson, Dellnap, Webb and Tyler, where I've been for the last 18 years. Um, the vast majority of my clients, by the time I changed, were nonprofit institutions. I had some individual clients, and for those, I usually did their philanthropic and art-related work. A lot of them were doing a lot of work in um, you know, with foundations and things. But I also represented lots of big institutions doing you know cultural things, museums and other kinds of institutions. And so many of those clients came with me, virtually all of them. And so I ended up with um, a uh, sort of the same work I've been doing. And so I sometimes joke that I've, for the last almost 32 years, I've, I've had one job. I've just done it in two different places. So... <laughs> That's awesome. So what made you decide to kind of major or focus on the art and museum, like art and museum law, um, getting into the arts per se? Um, I, it's, it's several different things. I mean, I, I always had kind of an instinctive interest in, in, in the arts, you know, in literature and whatnot. I mean, I was a a very happy, you know, taker of English classes at college high. And, you know, even though I did, I did the journalism stuff, but I was specifically interested in the arts aspects of it, even, even when I was doing the journalism. And I I think nobody in these segments that I've watched, I've watched some of them. I haven't watched all of them. I don't think anybody has mentioned the Nautilus to speak of, but, you know, we had this amazing teacher, Edith Hicks, um, you know, who was one of the most remarkable people I've ever known or worked with. And, um, she was a tremendous inspiration and also sort of made you feel like garnering knowledge and writing about it in a, in, a, in a persuasive, interesting, engaging way was maybe like the highest calling in the world. And so it was it was a it was a great thing to be tutored by Edith. And uh, we all called her Edith. That was perfectly understood. And um, and she and I really bonded. Um, I, I kind of made a point of getting on her radar even before I arrived at College High. I was I was down there in the summer before tenth grade, hanging out trying to meet Edith Hicks. Oh yeah, and make sure she knew who I was. So when I got there, I was like a known quantity, and then she'd go out for a smoke between classes. And that was before they made that that addition on the north end of College High, and there were steps back there. And yeah. we go sit out, stand out there sometimes blisteringly cold or blisteringly hot weather, and she'd smoke her cigarettes and lean down and speak in this very soft voice, this kind of cigarette voice. Um, yeah. She always thought she sort of sounded like Lauren Bacall. I did. <laughs> and um, and we talk about what we've been doing in class. I, so I, I loved her. I loved that class. And I love the way that I, she was sort of taking me into her confidence all the time. And one of the, one of the oh, guests yeah. that came to speak to class uh, in this period was a man called Brendan Gill. And, and Brendan Gill was the theater critic at The New Yorker. And because I was interested in these things, I knew perfectly well who Brendan Gill was. He was very keen to meet him. He'd just written a biography of Frank Lloyd Wright called Many Masks, and he was on the publicity tour. And so, of course, he came to Bartlesville to, to, to talk about his Frank Lloyd Wright book, because, of course, the Price Tower is there. And there was a retired English teacher called Betty Turk, who was kind of um, shepherding him around town. And Betty Turk brought him to Mrs. Hicks's class and we got to interview him. And um, I just could not stop asking questions to the point that Mrs. Turk finally asked Edith to please get me to shut up. But I mean, to me, like the chance to talk to the theater critic from the New Yorker was like the most thrilling thing I could imagine. And, right. uh, but I think he was a little tired of my theater questions. He wasn't really there to talk about what was playing on Broadway that season. 
And, um, but I was interested then. And, uh, I, and I got to SMU and I discovered that not only was I interested in the arts, but I also was like really in, interested in nonprofit institutions. And I, I, I discovered that I really liked uh, being part of the university and being, and, and I, I got to know the president of the university and the, the vice president for finance, the vice president for university relations and the vice president for, and, uh, for, for legal affairs. I got to know them all because I was so interested in the life of the university and the way universities were put together. I knew a lot of deans and it was like, you know, I, I discovered that this was a world I liked being in. And uh, a friend of mine uh, says that, you know, that I'm an institutionalist. And uh, I think by nature, being part of an institution like that appealed to me. And so I think working, working in the arts has been a sort of a process of being part of any number of institutions um, and helping build institutions and sustain institutions and, and really being part of figuring out things like, you know, the capital campaign, the, the, um, the development of collections, um, politics of the board, all that stuff. Um, so it, it was a, it was a, I don't know, it was a way of like learning about yourself, learning what your aptitudes are. And, and that, that happened to be one of mine. I looked on the page, everybody watching, listening, get your yearbooks out. Um, page 126. Uh, I can't, is that Edith? There's Edith. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, I, yeah. I probably wrote that. I don't remember, but, uh, <laughs> I, she, 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 she developed cancer um, in my junior year and uh, she had lung cancer. The smoking, you know, caught up with her. Yeah. Uh, I, I thought she was tremendous. I thought she was tremendously old because she was 59. Uh, wow. An age that I would be in a year. But, uh, but, but she, um, uh, you know, I, I thought, oh my God, that's so old. Anyway, she was, you know, she had memories going back 40 years, you know, imagine that. And so, um, but she, uh, but she had been a heavy smoker um for decades that's how you get that lauren bacall voice yeah. and um so it wasn't a great show the way that she had lung cancer um and she tried to teach but it was difficult we had a lot of substitute teachers my junior year um i would go see her sometimes you know at her house or she would sometimes come in and and then um but she was completely unable to teach senior year and darla tresner uh came in then and then yeah. my recollection is Edith died in February or March of 82. And hence that, um, in memoriam there. Um, oh, okay. and, uh, it was, it was, it was a, a, sad, a sad thing. It was such a great, um, a great figure in, uh, college high and, uh, in, in journalism. Going back to Bartlesville. So we'll, we'll get back. We'll, uh, get in the time machine here and, Let's jump back to Bartlesville growing up. Did you, were you uh, born in Bartlesville? Did you? I was, I, I was, I was born at Memorial Hospital downtown. Oh, wow. And, uh, my parents at the time were living in Dewey, um, but my father was from Bartlesville and had been born in Bartlesville in the thirties. And my mother was from Barnstall, uh, a ranch outside Barnstall over in Osage County. And her parents um, were living in Bartlesville by the time I was born. Um, and so I, I'm not quite sure why we were doing my father who always was, you know, investing in things, buying buildings and things. He had had some buildings up at Dewey, I know. And then, um, I was, uh, transported, uh, to Bartlesville, I think about the age of two. Um, and, um, and then, you know, lived there until 
I left in 1982. Right, right. So, uh, go, uh, growing up, elementary school, which one did you go to? Uh, Southview. Southview, uh, which was the is Southview. That's where I started. There's, it's a little school. It's still there. I don't know if it's still open, but it's down around. Um, um, it's. Where is it? It's like 21st Street or something. It's like it's sort of the south part of the old part of town, uh, south even of College High. And uh, it was only for kindergarten through third grade, if I recall correctly. And so I, I went to kindergarten, first and second grade there. Um, Mrs. Wagner, um, Mrs. Ballard and then Mrs. Ingersoll. Uh, were my teachers, um, and um, I got along best, I think, with Mrs. Wagner and, and, and Mrs. Ingersoll. I remember tension with Mrs. Ballard. And uh, then we moved um, to, to, to the corner of 13th and Osage, where, which, which was really where I grew up uh, in that house. We, we, we lived down on a street called College View when, we, when I was at Southview. And then, um, then I was went to the White House, the White House on uh, the White House on, on the 13th and square columns yeah yeah because yeah. you you live near there i think right and no i, I um, lived out I, in oh uh, we lived out in uh well actually uh yeah when we first moved here uh we uh rented a house from my dad's brother uh on armstrong for a couple of months and then we ultimately moved out to uh oak park went out to oak park elementary okay yeah but i i live there paul dismang lived a block away uh, I, I watched uh, his segment and I, he, I noticed he, he, he mentioned me and he mentioned that like, you know, we kind of live near each other. We did, indeed we did. He lived the next, next corner up, if I recall correctly on Dewey and 13th. Who was that? And, uh, Paul Dismay. Oh yeah. And um, so, so we lived there and I went to, and to uh, fourth and uh, fifth grade at third, fourth and fifth grades, I should say. No, correction. Third and fourth grades, this is Boone, Anita Boone. Um, and fourth grade was a Mr. Owens. And um, and uh, Mr. Cox was the principal. So Boone, and, this was all at Garfield? Oh, Garfield, yeah. yeah. What did you think and, about Garfield? Well, um, I thought it was kind of scary because it was so big. Um, and, and the, the, the students were a little bit more diverse, shall we say, than had been the case at Southview. And so there was a little more economic diversity and, 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 and therefore there was, there was more tension, I would say, plus we were older, you know, you get older and the kids are much more like poking at each other. Um, and it was like, a, it just seemed enormous to me too. It just seemed like such a right. big place. The Southview was like, little low-rise one-story building you know and suddenly i'm in this building with these enormous stairs and echoing right. hallways in, in those days part of what you hear echoing the hallways was the sound of the students being paddled and you know corporal <laughs> punishment was was permitted and i dare say encouraged and so you know you you were out you know with your your pass to go to the drinking fountain between classes you'd hear somebody getting you know flapped um in the hallways and it was the only time I was ever subjected to uh, cor corporal punishment by the Bartlesville Public Schools, but I, um, I would stairs uh, at lunch hour in the building when we were supposed to be outside. And so one, the, the deal was, you know, I was 
running up the stairs and these girls were running down the other side and we would sort of sometimes we'd meet in the middle and but we were trying to find each other on these different levels of stairs the front of the back of the building and so one time I came running down the stairs by thinking I was going to encounter the girls instead I encountered Mr. Cox and uh he had come to trap us basically and so he took me and another guy and maybe the girls too I think he took all four of us to the office and we all got spanked uh with a wooden (laughs) paddle um and um and we, we also, we were supposed to be quiet in the cafeteria. And, um, and then we were supposed to go out and play softball um, in some seasons, in the colder seasons, soccer. And uh, if you talk too loudly in the cafeteria, you can put on the wall. There was this big retaining wall. And so I um, didn't want to play softball and didn't want to play soccer. So I thought this was perfect. So I would just talk too loudly get in trouble and then get put on the wall. Uh, and, <laughs> and eventually people got onto me for this, that I was, I was kind of uh, twisting the system a little bit, but anyway, and, and then of course Garfield closed because they were going to tear it down to build a community center. And then, right. and then we going to McKinley. And so I, I did fifth and sixth grade down there. And I, I, fifth grade was with one, the wonderful Irene Stewart, who was a terrific lady and teacher. Um, and, um, then sixth grade uh, was with Anita Boone, who had, um, no, that's not right. Correction, correction. I had some classes with Anita Boone, I, not as many as I wanted. She had come from Garfield where she taught third grade. She'd come to McKinley and was teaching sixth grade. And I took one or two classes with her. But the way it was organized, I was mainly with a teacher called Mr. Floyd, um, of whom I did not have the highest opinion. And so there was a lot of tension between him and me. But anyway, we got through that. And then... Um, and then um, 1976, I, I played, I discovered my fondness for theater and did, um, I played the mayor in the, in the sixth grade operetta called The Trouble with Christmas. Um, and um, I was the mayor who I think, if I remember correctly, canceled Christmas in a small town and then got his comeuppance. Um, and I, we did a bicentennial play. Uh, and I played uh, George Washington in a polyester suit. Um, and then it was, it was, it was like a blue houndstooth, as I recall. It was, this, it was the strangest wardrobe choice. But anyway, I think, yeah. I think I used tube socks as stockings. Anyway, then, um, uh, then, then I went to Central. And of course, then it was the great melting pot again. It was like this Garfield times seven, you know, as people right. from all over uh, the Western town uh, convened there. And uh, did my three years there. Then, I could go uh, on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a good memory. I, I remember. I've said this before on the on the on the podcast. Garfield. Oh my god, I just hated it. I just ugh. couldn't get out of there. Fast. It felt it, it, there was something about it that was oppressive. And, yeah. Um, and um, I I I. I I'm not quite sure why it was just, it was just like an old building. that just felt like a it's, place. It's like, it a prison. like a prison. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. everybody was always and getting in trouble. It was real dis- strict disciplinary and sort of set up there. And uh, yeah, I, I, I didn't love Garfield. Uh, Seems like it was raining McKinley, every day. <laughs> Gray clouds. Well, that's, how, that's how I remember Columbia Law School, but uh, it, I'm sure it wasn't, but that's how it felt. Oh yeah. Going to uh, going to college high. What's your probably one of your 
fondest memory? When you think of College High, you think of, of the class of 82. What's the first thing that comes to mind? It may be the class of 81. Um, I, I, I spent I, more time with members of the class of 81 than I spent with our class. And it was one of those things that, like, I, I got involved in the speech program, uh, which was really like speaking and theater, you know. And, uh, and a lot of the people I did that with were in the class ahead of us. Oh, okay. And so uh, by the time I was a senior, like three or four people who were really like my best friends had, had graduated and were in college. And so I would, I'd given up the speech stuff because I was going to be the editor of the Nautilus and I knew I didn't have time to do speech and go to tournaments and do all that and get the grades I wanted and run the Nautilus. So I'd given up speech and plus Bob Touchstone and I, we also kind of had our tensions between one another. Um, when, when one gets the sense sometimes I, I had, I, I either had like tense relationships with teachers or like great relationships with teachers. <laughs> um, and so and what was it about Touchstone? That, uh, what was it about Touchstone that uh, kind of uh, rubbed I, you the I, wrong I, way? Sometimes, sometimes he, he actually kind of called me out more for some of my antics more than other people did. So it probably just annoyed me that he was like, you know, challenging me in that way. So it was partly that. Um, and in ways that would probably not go down so well in 2022, he, he, he was very, uh, he was very, he was fonder of the, of the female students by far. And they were really fond of him. And so it was just, it was a kind of flirty atmosphere between Touchstone and some of the female students. And that was, you know, and I, and I obviously was not part of that. So it was kind of like, ugh, he's not, you know, he, He's not nice to me, particularly. So there's, there's, there are a lot of other stories. I don't mean to suggest it was anything improper by the standards of uh, any reasonable person today, but it right. was just, it was just different. And um, whereas I, got, I had a great relationship with Edith Hicks, and um, you know, we we really were just, I don't know, we just were made to be friends with each other. And I had a very good relationship with Dan Simmons, who uh, taught English, and. Mm -hmm. um, you know, led us through, you know, texts that at the time seemed very, very challenging. My first Shakespeare, you know, was with him uh, reading Macbeth. And, and I feel like I then did Hamlet as some kind of independent study or something. Like that. But I think that's right. And we we read Great Expectations, I, I believe, and Beowulf and whatnot. Um, and, you know, he was one of the more challenging teachers. Mm -hmm. George Love is somebody a lot of people have mentioned. and. Uh, I appreciated how hard he made his work, and you know it was really we 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 were forced to learn a lot. Um, yeah, and I will say, with the benefit of hindsight, I'm not sure how much of it was factual and how much of it was his opinion of the way the world worked, but but it was certainly a lot of stuff we had to master to 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 get through that class, and and it took a lot of time. Like it it, it was it was a real and this is, people were terrified of that class because everybody knew mm -hmm. you were going to read a lot of material, take a lot of notes write a lot of note cards, memorize a lot of stuff. Right. You know, what is it I've spent the last 40 years basically doing? That's basically what I do all the time. You know, <laughs> is I, I, I don't do as anymore, but I read a lot of stuff. I take a lot of notes. I write a lot of things. I spend a lot of time on it. And I use a little bit, you know, he, he, even he would say, I think the first time I ever heard the expression was from him that, yeah, well, sometimes people say, 
say my opinions are the right of Genghis Khan. You know, he would say that. And um, but but certainly it was intense and and, uh, and 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 fun in its way. I took world history and American history with him and uh, all, all good uh, training for the life ahead. Who was your uh, who was your gang? Who were your friends that you hung out with in high school? Well, in our class, um, Brett Thomason and I were both doing the journalism thing. And so we, you know, we spent time together. Um, I, because of the speech things, um, I spent time with Sandy Yeager and with Allison Holmes, who graduated a year early. Right. Um, and uh, Sandy and I had, had jointly worked on the junior high play. Uh, a play we did at Central in the ninth grade under Mr. Redmond, which was called um, Hey Teach. And it was a play set in a high school and Sandra, Sandy played uh, the teacher. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm not sure I was even on stage in that, quite frankly, but I, I was certainly involved in it. And so, so we, you know, we were working on those things kind of in, in that period. And then um, uh, so that, that was part of the group. And then, as I said, there were people that were uh, a year ahead of me uh, in the class of 81 that I was friendly with, uh, Steve Middlebrook, Tom Morris, um, Monica Velgas, and some other people who were like, you know, kind of the, 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 the theater speech crowd, uh, to some extent. Um, and, uh, and I was very busy, you know, I didn't, I didn't socialize. Like I wasn't the kind of guy you were going to find at the Sonic or the canteen, or, I mean, like I just wasn't there. You know, I was, I was either, um, at, uh, at, at, at school working on the Nautilus until they closed the school every day at five. Uh, or I was um, at the Bartlesville Examiner Enterprise, you know, mocking up the paper because we would, we would get it set downtown at the, at the EE as we called it. Um, right. And, um, or I was reading or, you know, um, listening to music or whatever. I, I was kind of solitary in that way. Um, I don't think anybody's going to have any tales of me, uh, out, you know, to, to drunken parties, you know, and, uh, <laughs> carousing, carousing. Yeah. John Lacey was somebody I would see sometimes because he was, uh, in the neighborhood. Uh, I remember after some play we did, I think it might've been, Hey, teach in the ninth grade, um, that he had a party at a cast party at his house. Um, and, uh, the Clarys were my neighbors. And, and so I, you know, spent some time, uh, with the, the, the Cleary Celeste, who's a couple of years um, junior to us, and uh, then Karen and, and uh, her and their brother Kevin, who's no longer with us. Uh, and so I hung out with them. In my neighborhood, there was a family called the Moores, and um, uh, Susie Moore might have been in our class, I think so. And she had several siblings, including a guy called Mike Moore. And who yeah, Susie Moore. Years. Yeah, Mike Moore worked for years and years at the bookstore out at the Washington Park Mall, and I would see him out there. So he, he sadly oh, died a few years. Yeah, ago. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and and Mike, um, you know, our, our neighborhood was like a funny little neighborhood. We were like a an odd group of kids there, and so we had I had the Velguses down the block one direction, and the Moors down the next block the other direction. And and we were all really interested in artistic things, and I remember being out of the yard like in you know 1979 and Mike Moore who was I think four years older than us and and Neil Velgas same age as Mike they were out there talking about Woody Allen movies and and they were both making movies 
And so, you know, they would make these like anywhere from three to, you know, 20 minute movies. And um, they made one once called La Horrendous Goose Creature, which was about a swamp monster that came up out of the Caney River and and tried to eat Bartlesville or something. And and sometimes I was allowed to like write the musical score. I'd sit at the Moore's organ and, and like compose a score from my rather pedestrian piano training um, for, for these movies, including one about Mrs. Hicks and, uh, the, and the Nautilus, even though I wasn't even at College High. Yet. Um, but there's somewhere out there, somebody hopefully has the Super 8 film of Mrs. Hicks being interviewed and people talking about Edith Hicks uh, at the Nautilus in about 1979. Um, so I, I skewed old in, in that sense. You know, I definitely skewed to the an older crowd. I was, uh, if I were to describe you from <clears throat> what I remember, I was going to say, I remember you as kind of kind of a, an old soul, um, <laughs> maybe a little older than you were, you know, uh, kind of came off that way. Um, uh, and that's not bad. That's, you know, that's just, uh, you seem to be a little bit ahead of us. I didn't really know what. I was doing. You seemed to know what you were doing, and um, I think we were friends. I, I think we were yeah, friends. Yeah, no, we were. School. We definitely yeah. were. Yeah. No, I, <clears throat> I, I remember that, and uh, I. Uh, but yeah, I was. I don't know. I was in my own my own world. I, I, I guess I kind of am a bit of an old soul. I mean, I, I spend a lot of time, you know, inhabiting the past imaginatively. You know, my reading the I, 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 you know, tend to read books, history books, or books that were written in the past, um, if not about the past. I watch a lot of old movies. I travel extensively to look at historic architecture. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm sort of somewhere about 1940 in terms of where I am in the, <laughs> in, in the world. Just a few more questions here. One, uh, what are you, uh, over the last uh, 40 years, what are you most proud of? Um, I would say, you know, the legal work that I've done that has um, made a difference in institutions, um, enduring institutions. And I've, I've worked on a number of uh, gifts and other transactions that have led to some important um, art collections and individual works of art coming to some of our major museums, um, important archives going to major museums, um, uh, artists, uh, creating foundations to sort of perpetuate their legacies as artists um, and endowment funds that have created various kinds of scholarly institutes at universities and, and museums. Uh, I'm very proud of that. You know, I, 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 I can walk around New York City and to some extent other places in, in the world too, not just New York, but especially New York and, and see, um, you know, in the wall labels and the things are on view um, things that I touched in one way or another that I helped make happen. And, um, you know, I've been doing this so long now, you know, it's, it's, it, it's quite amazing to me how it's all mounted up. And, um, you know, sometimes I can be at the Met and look at a Met Museum and I can see a wall label for a painting and, and, and my name's not on it, but, but I know that like I did the legal work that resulted in that painting being at the Metropolitan Museum. And that's, that's a very nice feeling. That, you, that you've somehow contributed to something that um, endures. Yeah, that's cool. Very cool. The flip side of that is what's been the most challenging time in the last 40 years for John Sayer? <laughs> um, 
This is the Barbara Walters moment. This is the yeah, Oprah Winfrey. I'm going to try I, to get you to cry here. Yeah, that's not likely. Um, but I think um, that the kind of just just getting through the 90s was sometimes challenging. I've said earlier that like I look back on um, my days at Millbank Tweed as kind of a golden time. But it was also like a time I was working really hard. Uh, I felt like I was not going to make partner. I was just kind of generally unhappy with my station in life, you know, and it was just really like, it just was kind of depressing sometimes. And, um, and it was just, it was like a time in life thing. It was a thing you just had to get through. And um, I went one night, we all, we all worked really late in those days, you know, and it was no, obviously no zoom or even email. And so people just, you know, it was just standard. You just were around dinner, you at your desk and leave around 10 PM having been there since 9 AM. And, uh, and I had colleagues, we all, all this did this. And so one night I was in a, a colleague's office, Madeline Rivlin, who was a brilliant tax lawyer. And uh, I was complaining about my life, you know, all the things that were like wrong with my life. And, and she just was looking at me kind of rolling her eyes, like, you know, please, please. Yeah. You know. And finally she said, John, assuming just for the sake of argument that it is true, that everything you've done in your life has been a complete waste up until now. That actually is not a reason to waste the rest of it. And that was like some of the best advice I ever got. The fact was that everything I had done was not a waste. I just was choosing to see it in a negative light because I was in a bad place. Um, but but it was the bad place was taking me to a place of just saying, oh, hell with it. You know, like, <laughs> you know, what, what, what all, what's all this going to really amount to? And when she said that to me, that just because even assuming it's true that your life has been a waste of time, that's no reason to waste the rest of it. It rang a bell for me. And I, that's I, cool. I, actually, that I really like that. 1997 or 98, not, not long before I became a partner, I became a partner in 2000. And, um, I had lunch with her shortly before the pandemic in New York. And she now lives in the suburbs and, and she came in for lunch with me one day. And I, I told her that story and she had no memory of that good advice. Um, but when I told her, she started to cry. And, uh, huh. but it was, it was, it was just like one of those, one of those wise things people tell you. And, uh, I learned a lot from my colleagues at Millbank. You know, there were, there were, there were so many things I still quote, you know, various partners and associates, uh, set saying to me, uh, wise, witty, wonderful things. And, um, another colleague of mine, um, from Millbank, Jay Swanson developed a, um, a saying that uh, uh, just remember, John, we only go around part of once. And that was another one that just like, like it was, it was like, a, I don't know, somebody just slapped my forehead. Like, wow, think about that. But like, we like we, to say we, we, only, we only go around once, right? Oh, you only go around once. Okay. Part, no, you only go around part of once, part once. The, bra the brilliant insight of that statement is that it's never quite as long as you think it is. And you never, you never really know what it's going to be. And you never really use what you've got fully. And so almost by definition, you only go around part of once. There's always going to be stuff you miss. There's always going to be stuff that didn't happen. Um, and, and, and it's, to me, that's always been a kind of galvanizing thought. That if we, well, if we only go around part of once, A, by, dis, by definition, we're going to be disappointed. Some things are just never going to happen because we just never got to them. Uh, yeah. and, and some time that we think we might have because our life expectancy is X may not be there for us. And I've discovered in knowing really, really old people, people in their 90s, who I've been really lucky to know a number, including a friend of mine who's, who's 99 and still going strong. 
And I was talking to him not long ago on the phone. And, and, and at 99, he was, he was you know, de- dealing with, he had had COVID since gotten over. Um, but you could tell there was a tone of regret in his, in his voice that, well, you know, maybe this is it, you know. And not, even 99 wasn't really all of it. And um, so I think that, you know, the, those, those kinds of ideas have really, like, animated me in my life. Um, and, and, and kept me going through all kinds of, you know, difficult clients and difficult colleagues and, and just difficult situations. Um, you know, uh, whether it was 9-11 or uh, the, the crash of 2008, you know, both of which had like enormous effects on my personal, uh, or my work life, really. I mean, I was fine, but like um, the COVID, whatever, it, all those things that like, um, those, those kinds of ideas have helped me a lot. Well, I know you need to go here. I'm running up on the clock here. My last question, uh, and we could go on. I got everything you just brought up brings up more questions I want to ask. But uh, the last question, like I ask everybody else is, you know, what would you tell John Sayre, 18-year-old John Sayre, as he's walking across the stage, knowing what you know now, what would you, if you could meet yourself, uh, knowing what you know now, what would you tell John? Um. What advice would you? I, I think it would be completely contradictory. Um, it would be slow down and do more. Uh, and those things don't go together. Like they just don't go together at all. But the fact is that like I always felt like this imperative to just kind of go and go and go. And uh, as a consequence, there were times that I probably could have luxuriated a little bit, but I didn't. Um, and like one of those times, you know, what if I'd taken off a year? I'd rather two years instead of just one year between college and law school. Would it really have made that much difference in the scheme of things? Maybe not. Um, and, and, and so, you know, there's a side of me that's just like, just trying to like enjoy what you have more. But, but, but that's also true on a day-to-day basis. You know, I don't have to spend as much time you know, doom scrolling as I do. I spend a lot of time doom scrolling. And it's, it's a huge waste of time. You know, it's like, there's a lot of bad news in the world. There's more bad news in the world than there ever was before. But like, you know, like you can slow down and do something like good rather than do something that's like not good. And, that, and that's the other side of it. That's the like, do more, do more of the things you want to do. And I, I've really embarked on a program lately of, of really trying to fill in some of the big gaps in, in, in my education. And there are things I could have done a long time ago because I, but I was busy doing other things and maybe the wrong things sometimes in the sense of, you know, too much worrying about work or too much doom scrolling, but now I'm really trying to get them done. And, uh, so I think it's, 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 it's a constant process. I would have to tell my young self, of trying to find that balance between like luxuriating and enjoying and appreciating what you have and what you're doing, giving yourself time and space and, and, and not maybe being quite so negative about some of the, th- the bad things that are happening. Um, and at the same time that you're giving yourself that space, use it, use it really well um, and do, do things that, that like other people wouldn't do. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, you know, I, I, I went to um, Europe for four months after I took the bar exam. I had no money. I, I was living on borrowed money, basically. Everybody thought I was crazy to do it. because one of the best things I've ever done. 17 weeks with a backpack and, you know, not many thousands of dollars traveling around Europe. And it was, it was such a great thing. And so 
That's you know, awesome. I, I, I think, you know, I look back at it now and I say, well, why didn't I do six? You know, it's like that, that like, <laughs> why didn't I do a little bit more? So I, I don't know. I, I think I sort of joke that I also would tell my 18 year old self hydrate, <laughs> don't, don't get dehydrated, um, stretch. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. I, I can't tell you the benefits of stretching, you know, the foam roll. Oh, I believe like, I know it. Yeah, I know it firsthand. Of all time. Like I almost had, had a knee operation and the foam roller and some, some Pilates and it went away. You know, I didn't, yeah. I didn't have it. I didn't need an operation. And so I, I think I, part of my lecture of my 18 year old self was take care of your physical self. Yeah. Um, it's not all in your head. A, a lot of it's in your head. A lot of it is in the way you orient yourself to the day's problems and whether you look at them with negativity or not. Um, and, and and getting the right balance on that more days than not. But taking care of the physical self, I want to make sure you laughed a lot. You know, like to me, I look I look back at the decisions I've made sometimes and like the best decisions were the ones that put me in places where there was a lot of laughter. Um, mm. And colleagues who I thought were funny. And we, we, um, we brought a kind of joy to the daily experience, partly through our capacity to make fun of it. Um, and you know, not undermine it, not destroy it. You didn't have to be a jerk about it, right? You could, you could certainly find the humor in it. Um, and, uh, and, and I think too, I I look back and I like, and again, these are, these are choices where I feel like I, I made, I made good decisions and I look at them. I'm really grateful I made them. I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't always aware I was making them. I, I think this had to do with like the way I was raised. I think it was something my parents kind of imbued in me. But like, I always, it was important to me always to associate with people I thought were people of integrity and goodwill. Um, and um, I can't think of anything else really that has like made a bigger difference than like weeding out the rotten apples along the way, you know, and um, really like maintaining that strong sense of who you are and what you're willing to do um, and what your limits are and what's good for you. And uh, that's like a very important uh, skill. And I, I think it's really hard for adolescents to do it, of course. Yeah. And 18 is adolescent, right? It, it's, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there's the, the, the scientists say that like the male brain is not grown and, and not, not fully formed until 26. And w- women, women get an easier path toward adulthood, evidently. And we see that throughout <laughs> school as the girls are more kind of mature than the guys are. Advanced, um, but yeah. apparently there is now science that, 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 that backs this up, and so I think um, it's um, it's it's important in the midst of all that to like really assess the quality of the, the thinking, the quality of the information gathering, therefore the quality of the facts, the the moral compass um, of the people around you, how well they know right from wrong, um, good from bad, um, how well you know those things. Um, I think that's all really important. Well, John, I could go, we could, we could go on, but I know I got to let you go. Uh, it's been a blast visiting with you and, uh, you brought up a lot of, a lot of things that, uh, I'm going to enjoy, uh, thinking about today. (laughs) And, uh, I like to slow down, do more. I like, uh, uh, all that, all that stuff. Yeah, and ponder that only you only go around part of once. That, that one takes a while to sink in. But like yeah. you know, the more, the more you think about it, the more it's like, yeah, that's exactly right. 
That's and exactly the, right. what your what your colleague told you, you're uh, uh, just because maybe your life has been, or let's suppose that it has been. Yeah. Even assuming for the sake of argument, this is the way lawyers talk to each other. Even yeah. assuming for the sake of argument that it, your whole life until now has been a waste, that it's not a reason to waste the rest of it. That's great. Yeah. That, 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 yeah, a whole, yeah, I love that. But anyway, so John, thanks. I really appreciate it. Last of the call high wildcats. This might be one of the last of the call high last of the last of the call high wildcats episodes. Uh, we're winding this down. I, I think I may, we, we might have two more maybe, and then I'm going to shut it down. So I really appreciate you getting in on this and uh, spending time. I know you're busy and but I really appreciate it. Well, it's fun to do it. Yeah. All right. Well, for John Sayre, this is Scott Townsend. Thanks for watching and listening to the last of the Call White Wildcats 1982 podcast. Have a great day. And we'll talk to you later. Last of the Call High Wildcats 1982 podcast is a Dizzo Man production. Visit the Last of the Call High Wildcats 1982 YouTube channel, listen on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. This podcast is made possible by our Patreon members, Butch Boland, Ben Townsend, Mark Thompson, Sandra Yeager, and Christy Brooks. And by... The generous donations made via the GoFundMe campaign.